The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I recently came across some teaching by a life coach. This particular group are uh, life coaches, entrepreneur coaches, business coaches, and they define their, uh, their mission statement is essentially, we are committed to helping others achieve their personal definition of success and create lives of greater joy, meaning, and fulfillment. And so that's pretty straightforward. That's pretty much the definition of almost any life coach, uh, entrepreneur coach, basically any business coach, is basically their clients have their own definition of success. So they know what will make them feel successful. They know their dreams, their plans. Okay, I want this with my career. I'd like to, uh, you know, be at this position at this age. I'd like to have this kind of salary, this kind of retirement. I'd like to run this kind of company, own this type of company. They, they have the client creates their own definition of success for their life. And then they help them, and they use that word create. They help them create. They help them be the creators of their own life according to their, what, what they believe will be joy, meaning, and fulfillment in their life. And so that's a basic definition for what most life coach and business coach and entrepreneur coach is. Well, they, they recommended this particular group, and this is not uncommon, but they recommended to rehearse, to their clients, to rehearse these positive statements to themselves. And this is not a new technique. This is decades old. But rehearsing these positive statements to themselves. But what I found with several um, different coaching groups, this was a little bit new to me. I hadn't seen this. Is they formulate that phrase very specifically. And they say, you start this phrase with the words, I am. And they say, there's power when you use that because you're kind of creating in your mind who you are. So you start your phrase, you look in the mirror, and you start this phrase with I am, so you're telling yourself who you are. So let me give you some examples, and I just took these right off the website of one of these coaching groups. Here are some of the phrases that they encourage you to regularly look in the mirror and tell yourself, and they're all I am statements. It goes like this. Here's one. I am a firm believer in my ideas. So look in the mirror. And whenever someone doubts your ideas, you look in the mirror and you tell yourself, but I am a believer in my ideas. Okay, here's another one. I am enough. So look in the mirror, tell yourself that you are enough. I am enough and I have everything I need to get where I want to be. I know where I want to be. I have enough to get there. I can do it. Here's another one. I am, starts with that I am phrasing. I am a magnet for the experiences I most desire. So I know what I desire, I know what kind of experiences I want out of life, and so I'm gonna tell myself that I can attract those to myself. Here's another one. I am worthy of all things wonderful. So look in the mirror, despite what people have said to you, despite of how you've been kind of beaten down in life, you look in the mirror and say, I am worthy of all things wonderful. Then here's another one. I am powerful enough to live in accordance with my own values, desires, and truths. So in other words, um, create your own values, desires, and truths. You decide what's true for you. you. You find your truth, and then you look in the mirror, and you remind yourself with this I am statement. I am powerful enough 
to live according to my truth that I've found. Now, there's some things that are commendable about this practice. On one hand, um, there is something helpful about interrupting that audio loop in your mind and in people's minds of negative and hurtful things that people have said to you over the years. You know, there are things that people have said and they play on an audio loop and it is important to interrupt that loop. So that, that, that's important. It's also important to deal intentionally with our identity. We've got to know what we are anchoring our identity to and where we're finding our self-worth. Aside from that, I have great concern about this practice and this, this type of, of practice. Because what this really does and what this can do is it can reframe our reality. It can kind of like help us like look at reality, kind of reframe it. But it doesn't go far enough because we don't need to just reframe reality. What we actually need is holistic transformation in our hearts and minds. In other words, I want you to imagine a room that needs desperately to be renovated and all you do is just kind of rearrange the decorations. But what you really need to do is it needs to be renovated down to the studs in the wall like and just start completely over. And that is offered to you and these, this type of self-talk, limited to that, is not enough to get what you need. And it doesn't achieve what you're offered, full transformation in your heart and your mind. But there's something in the Bible that, that takes it much further, and you can access that today. I want to share this passage with you, and over the next few weeks, it's Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through the whole section that we're going to study in this series, and then we're going to go back and look at just the first two verses that we're going to look at today. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. There's a traditional practice that uh, we do from time to time that is based on what we believe about the Bible. And I want to recognize that, you know, we're, we're coming with all different places, from different places spiritually. Uh, I acknowledge that. And there's probably different views in here or those of you joining us online, different views about what the Bible is. But what we believe as a church is that this is from God. This is God's words, God's truth about how he created the universe. And so we submit ourselves to this truth. And so there's this traditional practice of honoring this as God's word in that when it is re read uh, in, in the community, uh, we stand. And so today, uh, just, I want to invite you to stand with me now as I read through this text. And we're just standing just to kind of honor that we believe this is from God. And so let, let me just read this. Here's what it says. This is talking about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. This scripture is talking about Jesus and the, the power and beauty of this scripture 
is it stretches our mind about who Jesus is. So whatever preconceived ideas, whether you might say, look, I've, I grew up in church, or I grew up in a Christian church, or Catholic church, or I, uh, I've been a Christian for all my life, or you may have come in here saying, look, I don't know, I just have a bunch of questions, I'm not sure where I'm at. Um, we all came in with different conceptions and beliefs about Jesus. This passage stretches our minds to comprehend who the Bible declares that Jesus is. So let me just go back and let's just start with verse 15. Here's what it says. He, Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now it starts by acknowledging that the God of the Bible, the Bible claims that there is one true creator, almighty God, that this God, it starts by acknowledging that God is invisible. We don't interact with God with our tangible senses. And if you've ever walked through a season of doubt or season when your faith is being tested, that's, that can become a challenge. And maybe you've been tempted, like I know that at, at points in my life I've been tempted to say, God, it would just be so much easier. Could you just kind of just show up? Could you just kind of appear? Like it'd be easier on me if you could just, just be here and I could see you. But the Bible um, is very clear about that. It says that to say that is to underestimate who God is. I, I made a mistake uh, one time of underestimating the power of the rays of the sun. I traveled to uh, Colorado several years back and we we're doing all these outdoorsy things. We were, you know, doing like, we we're way high altitude and we we're doing like whitewater rafting and some hiking. And so we we're outside pretty much all day. And uh, it was clear skies. It was in the middle of the summer. And uh, the problem was I had kind of like some South Florida ar arrogance about me. You know, I'm like, look, I know about the sun, okay? Like, I can tell when I need to put sunscreen on. Like, I can tell when I just get, like, oh, it's getting a little hot on my face. I know I need to put some sunscreen on. I know about sunscreen. Don't tell me when I need to put sunscreen on. I know, okay? And, and the, the, the confusing thing or the deceptive thing is that in Colorado, it can be really, like, the sun out in full strength, middle of the summer, but it's still cool outside. And so I didn't put on sunscreen, and by the end of the day, my skin was torched. Okay, I was blistered. I was sunburned so so bad that my scalp was even sunburned. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that before, but if your scalp is sunburned and you forget and you run your fingers through your hair, okay, it is absolute agony. All right, it's like every hair follicle, follicle is like screaming at you for doing that. And uh, I learned that I had underestimated the sun, okay? And part of the reason was because I was an entire mile closer to the sun. Like what we know here at sea level is literally, like not like figuratively, literally the sun can kill you, right? The sun can kill you. That's how powerful it is. And it's so powerful that if you get a mile closer to it, it's even that more dangerous, which is actually saying something because the sun is 93 million miles away. And it's so powerful that you get one mile closer to, of its almost 100 million miles away. You get one mile closer and it can really hurt you. And so don't underestimate the sun. And it's, it's even more absurd to say, you know what, God, I'd love for you just, could you just appear before me? Like, that's more absurd than saying, you know what, the sun, I love the sun. It's warm on my face, okay? I like to lay out under the sun. I'd love to just dance on the surface of the sun. 
if you danced on the surface of the sun, like you'd be nothing, okay? Like you, you wouldn't just be burned up, like there'd be no remains, okay? You wouldn't even be toast, you'd be gone, all right? That is how furious the sun is. And our sun is a relatively small star. The one that we're talking about with the almighty living God, the Bible says, breathes stars out of his mouth. Do we actually think we could handle standing before the blazing holiness of almighty God and survive? The Bible just tells us explicitly early in the beginning, it says no one can look upon God and live. And so the reason that God is invisible is for our protection. It is an act of grace in our life that he is invisible. But what does this say? You say, yeah, but how am I supposed to know who, who uh, God is and what he's like? It says Jesus is the image of the invisible. You want to know what Jesus is like? You want to know what God is like? Look at the life of Jesus. You want to know what God's personality is like? You want to know what his emotions are, are like? Do you want to know how God treats people? Do you want to know how God views people like you? Look at the life of Jesus. He is the image. He's the picture. He's the, the tangible display of what the invisible God is like. He is the image of the invisible. He makes the invisible visible. That's who Jesus is. Then it takes it a step further. It says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that can mean one of a couple things. On one hand, it could mean kind of what we typically think of when we talk about firstborn. We think in terms of like literal birth order. So it might be talking about literal birth order, which means that what Paul is saying here in this letter to the Colossians, Paul is saying is that Jesus is the firstborn. So that would make him, if it's literal birth order, Jesus is the first creature that God made. Like of all the creation, all the creatures, he made Jesus. And so Jesus is a creature that God made first. But it can't possibly mean that. Because of all the things that the Bible is saying, it can't possibly mean creature. But that's kind of what our instinct is from our culture. But if you are an ancient culture and you hear the term firstborn, literal birth order is not the first thing you associate with that. Especially if you're coming out of an ancient Hebrew context like Paul is, you wouldn't think of literal birth order as much as you would think of the rank and position that the firstborn had. In the ancient Hebrew culture, the literal firstborn was given a firstborn son was given a larger inheritance than the other the others that were born. And you might be saying, "Well, that's kind of like not fair." I mean, what if you're like one of the other children? It's like, what is he just like the favorite? Like, why does he get like all the extra inheritance? Like, what's the deal there? Well, the deal is he would have, the firstborn son would have a position over the rest of, of the rest of the family. He was given extra inheritance because when the father would die, he would become the patriarch. He is now responsible for the rest of the family. He is responsible for them. He has a role over them. If one of them gets in trouble, one of the other family members, the firstborn son, the heir, is then responsible to bail them out. If they're in trouble, he has to use his inheritance to help them out. That is his role. What is, what is this saying about Jesus? He is the firstborn in a rank and position over all of creation. He is responsible for all of creation. Notice what it says. And man, let this just stretch your thinking about Jesus. It's not saying just that he's the firstborn among humans. He's not just responsible for humanity. It's all of creation. 
He's responsible for every single human, every animal, every plant, every blade of grass, every leaf on every tree, every tree you drove by today to get to church. He's responsible for everything. There's a dust particle on Neptune. He's responsible for that dust particle and all the dust particles on Neptune. He is responsible for every part of creation. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, that's a lot of responsibility. I know something, maybe you say, about having a lot of responsibility. You see, I am responsible for 300 employees. It's a lot of responsibility. And that is. Another person say, well, 300 employees, that's fine. Maybe you say, I'm responsible for 30,000 employees. I've got a lot of responsibility. Man, that is a lot of responsibility. What this is saying is that Jesus has authority and responsibility over a trillion. You mean like a trillion humans? Oh, no, I'm sorry. A trillion galaxies. Each with maybe 200 billion stars with their own solar systems and planets and asteroids and all the particles in there. Expand your mind as to what is under the authority and responsibility of Jesus Christ. All of creation. But here's why this is not just talking about Jesus as a creature. He couldn't possibly simply be something made by God because look what it says in verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and, what does that say there? Through him and for him. Here's why Jesus can't be just the first creature made, because what this is saying is Jesus is the creator he made everything. Like, okay, wait a minute. I, I'm okay with Jesus being a rabbi and Jesus being a great teacher, but you're saying he's the creator? I don't know. I think just Paul just, you know, took it too far here. Well, this is not the only place that the Bible says this. It says it multiple places. Here's another one at the very beginning of the book of John, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. It says this, all things were made through him, Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Like, okay, my brain just turned into a knot. Okay, it's like a pretzel. Like, okay, he's made, and then what was made? Like, what did that say? Okay, it's saying this. Jesus made everything. Without Jesus, nothing was made. Here's what it's trying to say. If there is no Jesus, there's nothing. And, and, and there's not even nothingness. There's not even a vacuum. There isn't, I don't know what the word is, but there's not even nothing, okay? That without Jesus is the creator. He made everything. It's all through Jesus. Jesus is the creator is what this is saying and what the scripture consistently declares. Jesus is actually the creator. He's not a creature. He's the one that made everything. And then it puts it in categories. He says whether earth or heaven, visible or invisible. In other words, Jesus made everything material and immaterial, like every plant, every person, you, made by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. Everything is made. That's the visible. And also the invisible. Like every law and rule that science stumbles on, like thermodynamics and gravity and all the physics laws, all of those things that we stumble upon, all the, the medical truths that we stumble upon, all made by Jesus is what this is saying. 
That means he's the inventor over everything, and then it takes it a step further. So whether authorities or rulers or dominions or kingdoms, all of it is his. So he, not, he didn't just make it. He has authority over it. That means there's no king, there's no queen that in the fullest sense of the word can say, this is my kingdom. Well, according to this, it, it truly ultimately is Jesus's. That means there's nothing in our life that I can say, this is my home, or this is my apartment, this is my condo, this is my house, this is my property. I can't really say, this is my wardrobe, or this is my finance, this is my car, these are my kids, this is my job, this is my dream. Really, there's nothing that we can, in its fullest sense, say that. It really all belongs to Jesus. He has authority over it, because if he's the inventor, then he is the owner. By rights, he has ownership of it. There's a woman that uh, attended our church for many years, and she just a couple months ago she passed away. Her name uh, was Martha, and she was in her 90s. And she loved coming to church. She loved her church, and she would uh, come down with her, her walker, and she'd sit down front every weekend until her health was, was failing her. Um, but she, she loved her church, loved Jesus. And um, I remember several years back, she invited me. I was talking to her uh, on one Sunday, and she invited me over to her condo in, in Century Village. And um, so I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to have lunch with you. And she invited me over for lunch. And, and the woman that, that brought her each week, she came as well. And the three of us sat down for lunch there. And, and so I said, so Martha, just tell me about your story. Tell me about your life. And so she, uh, she started telling me all these interesting stories. She's like, but there's one story I, I'd love to, to tell you. She says, I, you know, I'm an inventor. And I said, oh, really? You're an inventor? I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. What did you invent? And she says, well, you know, like the makeup compact I'm like, oh yeah, that little thing that, that uh, ladies keep in their purse and it's got the, the makeup in it and the little brush, sometimes like a little mirror in there. Yeah, I know, did you invent something uh, along with that? She says, no, I invented that. I said, really? And she's like, here, let me show you. And she kind of shuffles back to the back of her condo and she comes back out with, with a couple things back to the lunch table and she puts down, the first thing she puts down, sure enough, she says, yeah, 70 uh, plus years ago, I put this together. I was in my, my mid-20s at the time and I look and sure enough, it's this little homemade compact that she kind of decorated and I open it up and there's just different kinds of makeup in there and, and I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And then she put a sheet of paper on the table. It was a patent. I said, wait, Martha, you had this patented? And she says, yeah, I told you I invented it and I had it patented, the makeup compact. And then I'm thinking, I have seriously underestimated Martha. <laughs> I'm like looking around at this like modest condo and I'm like, man, I, does Martha have like a house on Malibu somewhere? I mean like, wow, Martha, this is impressive. I'm like, that's incredible. And I'm sure there's the date from like 70 years earlier. I'm like, Martha, tell me the story. Like, what happened with this? She's like, well, I, man, I was really scraping by at the time. I was just beginning my, my, uh, my time in the fashion industry. And so she's like, I, I took it to a makeup company. And it was some famous makeup company. I can't remember which one it was at this point. But she says, yeah, I took it into this and I showed them and they offered to buy it. And they bought it from me. They bought the patent and the rights to it. They bought it from me for $5,000. I said, Martha, I need to sit it down for a second. Can I just, I need to take a breather. I said, wow, Martha, $5,000? I'm like, okay, um, this thing that's affected, you know, almost every person in Western society, like, okay, $5,000, that's, that's fine. But, but then I looked at the look on her face, no regret, all joy, and I realized, no, I really have underestimated Martha. 90 plus years, love for Jesus, 
she truly understood what was important in this life and what parts of life were just details. See, Martha had rights over that because she invented it. And for someone else to get rights, they'd have to purchase it from her. But she had rights over it because it was her invention. You know, like what this is saying right, right here, this, this text in, in Colossians 1, what, what this is saying is Jesus made and invented everything and has authority. He has rights over everything. In other words, what is this text saying? This text is saying Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, responsible for all of creation, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all is made. What is it saying? Jesus is the one. Jesus, he, he is the one. It's all by him, it's all through him, and it is all for Jesus. He, Jesus is the point. Everything in the universe orbits Jesus. He is the center. Jesus is the one. And so what that then means, if Jesus is the one, what that means is Jesus is not one of the ones. He's the one. It's not a scenario where, hey, there's a bunch of different paths to spiritual enlightenment, according to this. That, that's not true. There's a bunch of different ways to get to heaven or paradise or, or get to God. There's a bunch of different paths. They're all equally good. You just pick which of the ones you want. You know, there's, whether it's Muhammad or it's Buddha or Confucius or Kabbalah or Moses, or you just pick which one you want to follow and they're all equally legitimate. That is not what this says. And I'm not sharing, it doesn't matter my opinion. What matters is what this is saying. What this is saying is there is only one. Jesus Christ is the one. There is no other. Jesus is the one. Because it's all about him and for him. In fact, it's, it's similar to how it plays out with one of Jesus' followers named Thomas. And all of, the, the follower, all of Jesus' disciples, they saw Jesus nailed to a cross, his body maimed in agony, bleeding out. They saw him die on a cross. They saw him dead. They knew where he was buried in a tomb with a giant stone rolled in front of the opening of the tomb. They knew where his body was buried. And, and one day, some of the followers say, Jesus, the body's not there. And, then, and an, there's an angel and says that he rose from the dead. And then others saying, I, I just saw Jesus. I saw him. He was alive again. And, and the disciples are talking about this. And Thomas, who had not seen Jesus alive, he said, look, here's the thing. I saw him. I, I know what you're saying. I'm sure you believe that Jesus is alive. But I, and unless I see his hands with the nail piercings, the scars on his hands and his feet, the scar on his side, I saw saw the man dead. I don't know what you saw. Maybe it was a ghost. Maybe it was a spirit. Maybe it was just a figment of your imagination. Okay. Maybe what you saw was an imposter, someone pretending to be Jesus. Until I see the scars, I can't, how could I possibly believe? And eight days later, all the disciples were in a room together. The door was closed. The door was locked. They're there together. And all of a sudden, Jesus was in the room. He didn't unlock the door. He didn't open the door. He didn't use the door. He didn't need the door. Jesus is in the room. And you know, Jesus needs a conversation with Thomas. He says, and I want you to see the grace and gentleness of Jesus has with Thomas. He says to Thomas, come see these scars. Almost like, Thomas, I know that you saw me turn water into wine. 
I know you saw me raise a crippled man up so he could walk again, a, a paralyzed man uh, out of his, uh, off of his mat and with no need for physical therapy, being able to walk and carry his mat home. I know that you saw that I gave a blind man sight. I know you saw me calm a storm and walk on water. And I know you heard me say over and over and over again that I would die and on the third day be rose again from the dead. But Thomas, I want you to have an opportunity to see my scars. So come here, touch these scars that say, your soul for eternity. And Thomas responded with some words. They weren't many. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, Thomas, calm down. I'm just a rabbi. Don't call me God. I'm just a rabbi. No, what does Jesus say? He says, yes, you have believed. You're right. You now understand who I am. I'm God in the flesh. The only, I, am, I am the creator in human flesh, so you can see me and have a tangible encounter with me as God. I am the creator in the flesh. He says, you believe because you've seen. And then Jesus says, but blessed are those, those myriads that will come after you, Thomas, that will believe even though they have not seen. What will they believe? They will believe believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and God. Who is Jesus talking about? You. He's blessing you for believing that he, Jesus Christ, is the creator God in the flesh. The promised Messiah was none other than God in the flesh of a man. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the one. He is not one of the ones. But that also means you are not the one. Because if everything is created by Jesus and it's for Jesus, your life is not for you. It's for Jesus. Your every breath you take is not for you. It's for Jesus. Your circumstances are not for your comfort. Your circumstances are for Jesus. Your life orbits Jesus. Whether it's your dreams, your goals, your relationships, your career, your family, your re every single part of your life, it is all for Jesus. You and I are not the one. Despite what the world says that says, hey, you are the creator over your life. You determine what you think is successful and then we'll come together and we'll help empower you to be the creator. So look in the mirror and use these I am statements to build up your strength to, so that you believe you are powerful enough to create and manifest the life that you want. You are not the creator. Jesus is. We're not the center of our lives. Our lives are for him. We're creatures. We orbit him. He is the center. Jesus is the one. We are not the ones. Now, the temptation for us to maybe say is like, look, okay, look, I hear what you're saying, and I, I see what that's saying in the passage, but that's just not what I prefer to believe. I just, I don't, I, I just not how I'm going to operate. That's, I mean, I'm going to find my own truth, 
And so what my truth is, I think everyone has the right to be the center of their own lives. They can all pick for themselves their own truth, their own reality, their own definition of success. We all have the freedom to be uh, a success for ourselves and to find for ourselves what we want. That's what I choose to believe. And let me just respond to that as lovingly as I can because there's a sense of urgency for me if that's what you believe. If that's what you choose to believe, you say, look, I... I just think we, all, I, I think we all can be the center of our own lives. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you want to believe. It doesn't matter what you choose to believe. In the same way, if you choose to believe that what you're breathing in that's sustaining you is really carbon dioxide, everyone else might be breathing in oxygen, but you're breathing in carbon dioxide, it doesn't matter if you want to believe that, you're breathing oxygen right now. It doesn't matter who you want to believe is the center. What you want to believe is the path. Jesus is the one. He is God and there is no other. Jesus is the one. But here's my heart for you. If you're saying that, if you're saying, no, I want to be the center and everyone has the right to be their own center, if you're saying that, then I know something about you, you don't know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus, every cell in your body would cry out that he might be the center of your life, your family, your church, your city, and the universe. You would cry out that Jesus is the center. Why? Because Jesus gave you some I am statements too. Jesus gave you some I am statements that you can cling to. Jesus said something about himself. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the provision for your hungry and starving souls. He says, I am the living water for your your thirsting souls. And those of us who understand what he's done to satisfy our souls know that he must be the center. Those of us who have experienced what the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman experienced, know what it's like to why we need Jesus and why we want Jesus to be the one. This woman who had come to the well all alone because her life is marked by her promiscuity. She's gone from one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next. She's an outcast of our society, covered with guilt and shame, and she finds herself at the well, and Jesus walks up and starts speaking with her. And she's shocked at his love and his kindness and his acceptance. And he says, you keep coming back to this well every single day and you're trying to satisfy your thirst. What you need is living water and you'll never have to go back to this well again. And at that moment, they both realized they were no longer talking about the physical well they were standing next to. They were talking about the relationship after relationship after relationship that this woman had gone to to try and satisfy her thirsting soul. And that day she met the living water, Jesus Christ. And her life wasn't just rearranged. Her life wasn't just tweaked. It wasn't just redecorated. Her entire life was transformed. She became a worshiper of the living hope, Jesus Christ. He became her God. And in th- those of us who have had that experience know that Jesus must be the one. We cannot share the throne with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He's the one that goes after the lost sheep. 
He's the one that goes and finds them and brings them back to himself. What did he do? How, did, how good of a shepherd is he? How, how good is he going after the lost sheep? In his final moments on the cross in agony, there's a thief next to him, rightfully crucified next to him, and he says to him, please, Jesus, remember me when you get to, to heaven. And Jesus pulls himself up, gasping for breath, blood streaming down his body, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And in those final moments, what is he doing? He's gathering more lost sheep. And he does the same thing to this day, and we know that we are the lost sheep that he carries on his shoulders back to the Father. That's who he is. He says, I am the good shepherd. And those of us who have experienced the good shepherd know he must be the one. He's the throne on the throne of our lives, and it cannot be shared with anything or anyone. Thursday of this week, we as a staff canceled all the things that we were involved in and we came together and we met here just as a staff and staff spouses. And we spent a couple hours in response to this text and in the series that we're walking into in, in prayer and in worship and in repentance. And literally on our, on our knees, on our faces, confessing anything in our lives that we have put first before Jesus Christ. And we believe God is calling us to walk through in this text a season where we aggressively repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance means we see our sin like it actually is. We don't excuse it. We don't rationalize it. We don't coddle it. We don't explain it away. We don't say, well, it's understandable. We, we don't calmly say, well, you know, I'll try and do better. No, we see it for what it is. We call it out and we respond. And if God grants us a heart of repentance, then what that means is we never return back to it. And we prayed for that as a staff, knowing that God was walking us through a season as a church. So let, let's respond to this text accordingly. Christian, I want to speak to those of you who have been a Christian for many decades, maybe all your life. We are never exempt for the tempta from the temptation of something else sneaking into our lives and becoming the first love of our lives over Jesus. And what he convicted me of in this time of prayer and repentance that we've been going through this past week is he said, Roby, just take a look at your, your prayer life and look at the things you pray for and the amount of time you spend praying for. Look at how much time, the majority of it, you spend asking for my power to show up in all of these areas and look how little time you just spend adoring me and worshiping me and praising my name and enjoying who I am. I realized in that moment that I'm asking for his power to uphold something that I'm putting over him. Good things, but the moment it's over him, it's an idol. So I'm asking the one who is almighty God to help me prop up my idol. What is the idol in your life? Is it a relationship? A career, a dream, a hobby, a goal? 
if we spend more time daydreaming, thinking, planning, strategizing about that, then how could it be anything other than an idol? And what we're supposed to do with idols is not, well, let me slowly dismantle it or let me just take a couple steps in the right direction. What we do with idols is we immediately, ruthlessly, and recklessly tear it down because the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, deserves to be on the throne of our lives. What is the idol in your life? Please do not walk out of here without tearing down that idol and begging the Holy Spirit for a spirit of repentance so that you'd never return to that. Maybe you're a new Christian and you say, look, I've just started following Jesus. And he's like, he's my savior. I believe he died on the cross and rose again. But you need to make him the Lord and God of your life and say, look, I, I'm following him, but I'm actually keeping this part of my life and I'm not giving him control. I'm not being obedient in this relationship or, or with my finances or with my sexuality or with my career or with my plans. You, we have to give it all to Jesus. He is the one. He's the center. He is God. Repent and turn to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you say, look, I, I don't know where I'm at with God or with Jesus. I, I'm not sure I'm ready to take that step. Here's what the Bible said. says, it says, behold, he stands at the door and knocks. He's knocking. Jesus is knocking at your heart. Do we have the audacity? Would you dare leave the one, the God of the universe, who's sustaining your heart and keeping it beating? Would you dare leave him outside the door? Answer the door today and call him into your life. Make him your Lord and your God. We're going to end our time in communion today. And you'll see there's tables in the front and tables in the back. And at each of these places, there's bread that's broken. And there's little cups with juice in it. And it's because Jesus commanded us to take this small meal where we take the bread that's broken. It symbolizes his body that was broken for us. And we take the juice that symbolizes his shed blood for us. And so if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, just hold off from taking communion today because that's a declaration that Jesus is your Lord, your Savior, and your God. But if, if you're ready to do that for the first time, when you come up here, you'll see wooden cups, or when you go to the back, you'll see wooden cups. That's for you. The plastic cups are for the rest of us. But before you come to the table, can I ask you to take a moment of repentance, take some time in repentance, May we not have the audacity to casually declare the suffering of our Savior to wash away our sins if we haven't committed to tear down the idols in our life. And so we've reserved some time at the end of our service to take communion and then you're gonna, you'll come forward or go to the back, you'll eat the bread, drink the juice, then you'll go back to your seat and we'll have a time of worship singing to Jesus the praises that he is due. But let's enter into a time of thoughtful, prayerful repentance. Would you go before the Lord in prayer? Would you bow your heads? Maybe you're sitting here or watching online. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. What is he calling you to repent of today? To leave behind. You know, he has rights over every single part of your life. He's the inventor of you. By rights, he has ownership of you. He doesn't have to buy you, purchase you. He has rights already. He holds the patent. But so great is the Savior's love for you that he purchased you anyway. 
And what did he spend on you? Was it stars of the sky? Was it galaxies, millions of galaxies? What did he spend on your soul, the most precious substance in the universe? He gave his own life for you. That is how great his love is. How could we hold anything back from Jesus? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be in this place. Would you call us to repentance? We want you, Jesus, on the throne. Nothing competes with you. You are the one. Our lives are about bringing you glory and nothing else. We repent of what we have put before you and we ask that you, would, that you would help us to leave these things behind and keep you on the throne in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe today as we're closing in worship, I want you to know that this space up here, up in the front or off to the sides is open. Maybe you want to come forward and kneel. Maybe that's a step for you of just humbling yourself. You just come before and you kneel before God. Maybe you stay up here and worship before God. But when you're ready you can begin coming forward to the front or the back and receiving communion. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954 954- 432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.